0: Hello, loyal Desenio podcast listeners. This is Ollie Stratford, Desenio's editor-in-chief. I'm excited to share something new with you. This download is the first episode of The Crit, the new fortnightly design podcast from Desenio. Each episode, we're going to be looking at the latest stories from design around the world and subjecting it to analysis and comment. It's an essential one-stop for all the latest design news and product launches. The Crit exists in its own podcast channel, so please do subscribe. Although, keep your subscription to the Sonya podcasts, we're going to be using this channel too. Anyway, I hope you enjoy it. Please welcome the first episode of The Crit. <coughs> Hello and welcome to The Crit, the new design podcast from Desenio, the quarterly journal of design. My name is Ollie Stratford, I'm the Journalist Editor-in-Chief.
1: And my name is Christina Rapatsky uh, and I'm the Deputy Editor of Desenio and we're your hosts.
0: So The Crit is going to be a fortnightly podcast in which we run a rule over recent design news and wider events and how they impact upon the design industries.
1: I guess the format's kind of loosely based on The Crit that you get in in art schools, a kind of regular review of student work but uh, in this case we're kind of reviewing design industry news
0: we're casting ourselves in the role of snooty professors sneering uh, or, or or praising whatever whatever students which i suppose in this case is the design industry i've become lost in the metaphor yeah yeah how are you
1: uh, I'm all right. I'm all right. Uh, I'm I'm excited to finally be doing this because we put a teaser out in was it March? It March
0: was March 2020,
1: yeah. promising a new episode launching soon, uh, and then that never happened um, because you know 2020. But we're back.
0: Christina, what are your thoughts on uh, classicism? So classical architecture, you know the type of thing. Columns, white marble, all that jazz. Pediments, pediments,
1: Doric columns. It's a bit fascist, isn't it?
0: It's very fascist. <laughs> only fascist. Yeah, like only it.
1: fascists like that type of architecture, um, especially when it's like new build. Uh, no, I mean this is this is this is a serious matter. Um, this type of architecture has become associated with right wing Twitter and uh right wing ideology in general uh, and uh, I think that the story that we want to get to here is one about um a draft executive bill that Trump uh never signed, but which made a big splash earlier in the year, right it was a it was titled "Make Federal Buildings Beautiful again," which is a title that only Trump could have come up with. <laughs>
0: it's a very trumpian title um it's a very trumpian bill in general so basically What this was intended to do was overthrow these long existing guiding principles in US federal architecture. These principles were drafted by New York Senator uh, Daniel Patrick Moynihan, which said that...
1: A democratic senator in the 60s. Yeah,
0: exactly. Which said that any official style must be avoided in the US. So you don't have um, a house style, if you like, for federal buildings. They should reflect their time and you should have different styles for different purposes. Is, and this huge old melting pot in the in the grand old American tradition.
1: Yeah, he, fa- he famously said that you know, architectural style should flow from architects to government and not vice versa. So government shouldn't dictate like an official architectural style. That, I think, in the 60s, when Moynihan was, when he formulated this policy, official architecture of any sort uh, or unofficially uh, prescribed architectural style would have been associated with totalitarian regimes.
0: Yeah, the European fascist states in the first half of the 20th century make heavy use of this style. Moynihan even goes so far as to say uh, that the US should be willing to pay more to avoid uniformity in federal buildings. Then enter Trump. So Trump tears all of this up he he enters with all his usual sort of tact and delicacy takes a bulldozer to it in in the style of uh the developer he is i suppose and he says that all federal buildings going forward need to follow the classical architectural style it's to be the preferred and default style for new and upgraded federal buildings
1: and there was a big uh furore the uh, American Institute of Architects was up in arms about it uh when the news broke or well, I think it was leaked i think cause it was a draft bill uh so it was leaked early in the earlier in the year and the a i a yeah uh was really angry uh, thousands of architects wrote to the white house uh we wrote a story about <laughs> we wrote a story about it in Desenio. You know, on equal parity with all those other developments, but then obviously 2020 happened. Uh, COVID happened. Um, Black Lives Matter reemerged with a renewed urgency, and this news fell to the wayside. Also importantly, uh, Biden is now the president-elect. But now uh, it's emerged uh, that the GSA, which is the General Services Authority, is that right?
0: general services administration
1: sorry i got it wrong um, no well
0: i mean they're acting as if they are an authority they're acting <laughs> uh they're acting uh t- totally without legal basis at the moment i'm uh, sorry i'm getting ahead of myself but yeah it's, you need, it's to, an you need irritating... to explain what's happening yeah so okay this executive order never passes it never gains any legal status it just falls by the wayside However, it seems as if the GSA has begun to act on it anyway and to incorporate it into its solicitations for new buildings. So, there's a uh, new courthouse, £125 million, so it's a, a considerable project set to be built in Fort Lauderdale in Florida. Now the language in the document uh for uh, commissioning architects for that project says classical architectural style shall be the preferred and default style, absent special extenuating factors necessitating another style. So that's language almost straight up lifted from that executive order.
1: I think it is actually lifted adverbatim from the yeah. from the from make federal buildings beautiful again.
0: And this is not the first time the GSA have done this. So back in 2019, another courthouse in Huntsville, Alabama, where again they say that the design of the new courthouse be neoclassical slash Greek revival in style. So you have a situation where this administration seems to be acting on the basis of that executive order, even though it never passed
1: yeah I guess it's interesting because the Alabama courthouse that like that was before this uh, Trump executive uh, uh, bill was even discussed. Uh, so it seems like this is a, a body that has maybe lean been leaning this way for some time anyway uh, but that it maybe was emboldened by this this leaked uh bill but yeah it's it, it's an interesting development. There's been this long-standing now uh, kind of relationship between right-wing Twitter, in particular, and uh, and, and classical or Greco-Roman styles uh, of architecture. What is it about this style uh, that makes um, right-wing people so excited?
0: <laughs> what gets them going about it? Yeah, um, well. I mean, I have slightly different answers. I suppose the um, the answer that they would like to put forward, and which is definitely the answer that um, Trump and his administration put forward with that original executive order, is that those styles are seen as harking back to the classical models of democratic Athens and republican Rome. So there's their, these ideas that those civilizations are presented as the sort of cradle of Western democracy and embody all that is good about democratic ideals. So I, th- I think that's the veneer they would like to put on it, that what they're doing is trying to hark back to this golden age of democracy and reflecting core sociological values. That's a nonsense. Or
1: Western values. <laughs> but then but then, I guess there's also this, you know, like a lot of the the federal buildings in Washington, D.C., like the really grand ones were built in the 30s uh, in a neoclassical style. And there's maybe this kind of, you know, a charitable reading again would be, you know, like people are, are feeling nostalgic about these great civic ideals of that era, of the New Deal and, and, and that sort of thing. And, uh, you know, I think that's... You know, that's that's one argument.
0: Yeah, that's that's the charitable argument. I think the more sinister thing is you you mentioned that this comes up a lot on Twitter and often has links to white supremacist accounts and so on. And there's this a lot of ideas swirling around, and I I think linked to the fact that classicism and neoclassicism were quite heavily used in fascist regimes in the 20th centuries, that they. They call to ideas around sort of racial purity and the sort of supremacy of European and Anglo-American culture. So there's this really dark, grotty, unpleasant, bigoted side to it.
1: Sometimes that's explicit on these Twitter accounts, I should say, you know, and the modernist architecture. And I use that in Scarecrow's because modernist architecture is taken in this debate to be anything that is not neoclassical do you know what i mean anything that uh uses stainless steel you know (laughs) uh, and that does not have white you know plastered uh, pilasters and columns on it
0: anything that doesn't look as if socrates might have passed through it on his way to the agora basically
1: <laughs> precisely and that that anything that is not that is not socrates and the agora is is kind of degenerate like that is the that that's the vibe you get off of these accounts
0: yeah it's this kind of would you want this in your neighborhood this disgrace well it's probably better than this weird cosplay that we're all roman senators on the way to decide whether to invade the Goths or something. It's really, really bizarre. And I think you're right, it does tie into this more general sort of culture wars type thing of harking back to this imagined past, presenting aspects of the past completely stripped of context and complexity and claiming that we've sort of fallen from that golden age. So I know there's this think tank called the National Civic Arts Society who who have really pushed for this order and they they have this claim that everyone sort of 99% of society loves classicism and just wants classicism and we all want to be living on Capitol Hill in Rome and that it's only these they made
1: a poll apparently
0: (laughs) totally scientific poll (laughs) and it's only these corrupt liberal elites sentencing everyone to live in brutalist tower blocks and things like that so there's this i don't know it's it's such a bizarre way of looking at the world to to want to hark back to these these civilizations from thousands of years ago and
1: it's, it is troubling. We should also, we should also say and this is something that's come up before in discussing these these uh, types of accounts and uh, this link between right wing ideology and uh, classical and neoclassical architecture is that if you look at the um, the architectural style in the American South um, in the in the 18th and 19th century, the kind of plantation style. Uh, porches are kind, kind of borrow from the porticos and uh, columned um, pediments of uh, neoclassical architecture. And this is a style that for very many uh, Americans... Uh, have direct kind of links to, to slavery.
0: Yeah, I mean, I I think some, to end on maybe a slightly more positive note, or, or at least a sign that something hopefully will be done about this under the Biden administration, um, a Nevada representative, Dinah Titus, um, she chairs the House Subcommittee that oversees the GSA, has introduced a bill. It's called the Democracy and Design Act, and that would prohibit the GSA from adopting any ban on, again, modernism in 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 scare quotes. So there, there is there is movement against this, and hopefully it's something that can be prevented. Because there there, there is something profoundly undemocratic and and sinister and creeping about instigating an official national style in architecture that's that that's not a move that you would expect to see really in a in a democratic country so this week uh some reporting from our colleagues over at deseen broke which made for interesting reading which is the organizers of milan salone del mobile for anyone who doesn't know Salone del Mobile is an annual trade fair for design, particularly furniture design, I suppose, but other areas too. Uh, it's hugely important. It's probably the biggest one in the annual calendar. It's hugely important from- if,
1: if you find new chairs and uh, furniture important,
0: which we do. We do. And economically, it's important. So, like, Italy's furniture industry apparently is worth something like 22 billion euros. It's vast, it's enormous, and that's heavily reliant on Milan, because you bring all the designers, the manufacturers, the buyers, the journalists together, they all mix, they show each other what they've been up to, and it uh, lubricates the wheels of commerce. So Salone in 2020 gets cancelled. I think it's the first time in its history. It's been running since 1961, never previously been cancelled. They are very committed to it going ahead in 2021. They've said it will definitely go ahead. Um, however, normally Salone takes place in April. Clearly, at the moment, that looks quite precarious. The world's journalists, producers all descending upon Milan in the spring, given Covid is is likely to be a disaster. So Dezina reporting that the fair's organisers are considering moving that fair to late September when hopefully the situation is a little bit more under control.
1: Yeah and I suppose that is the time of year when the London Design Festival would normally take place and you know the the, the way the year is organized in the design industry is is around all of these big fair Events, some of which have been cancelled, some of which are beginning to potentially shift around, like Saloni. So,
0: yeah, September is traditionally quite a busy month for design. Like you said, there's London Design Festival. There's also Beijing Design Week. Uh, Maison and Objet in Paris usually goes ahead that uh, month. There's a lot of things.
1: There's Habitat in in Helsinki. I think is also in September, September. Yeah,
0: it's there's there's a huge amount already going on in that month. And at the moment, everything is chaos, is in flux, because all the events from early in the year have either been cancelled, uh, like Stockholm Furniture and Lightfair has been cancelled, for instance, or else they're already shifting further into the year. So Design March in Iceland has moved from March to May, uh, Design May, I suppose, now then. Um,
1: just doesn't have the same ring to it.
0: It's less catchy.
1: It sounds like it, yeah, no longer sounds like you're marching forward to uh, to an exciting designed future. No,
0: it sounds more ambivalent. Like maybe design, don't know. <laughs> um, so there's it's It's not. I, I guess in the context of the pandemic, it's not the most important thing in the world. But there is going to be this huge problem of trying to rejig that calendar, trying to work out which events can go where and how you fit them around one another and it will be interesting to see whether all of these events which traditionally are based on this kind of internationalism bringing everyone together from around the world maybe end up having to adopt a much more local perspective and and become more grounded in the countries and cities in which they're in both because there may still be travel restrictions. People might not want to be traveling around the world. And also because there may just be more competition if you're condensing that schedule down. People might not be willing to fly halfway around the world when another festival much closer to them is happening at the same it, it's time. It's made
1: us all think about uh, whether, <laughs> whether this amount of traveling and this amount of uh, trade events is actually sustainable, both for the industry, but also for just, like, individuals and their own their well-being and obviously for the environment i also wonder if if there's a long overdue just kind of recalibration of these industry events to suit a more locally responsible way of uh, doing business it's a
0: topic that the journalist peter uh, smizek wrote about in our most recent issue actually that's decenia 28 nice plug yeah um And Peter writes about it really well and sets up the issues around design. And I think it's a situation that will be familiar to people in all kinds of industries and all areas, which is everyone in design knows it's a problem. They know we shouldn't be travelling so much. They know we should not be producing so much. That there is a problem with this just endlessly churning out new products and everyone jetting around the world to see them. The issue is that at the moment, people haven't really put together viable alternatives to it. So
1: I suppose there's various virtual alternatives. I mean, Dazine did a um, did a virtual design week during what would have been Salone this year. And um, other other fairs have opted for like um, a local presence, but then very much a, a kind of extended virtual program. So, uh, but I think I think we're all we're all fed up with looking at things at, on our screens. Uh, Zoom it's, fatigue is the other. Zoom fatigue. Um, I don't. I, I think that's not a not a sustainable again sustainable way for, for individuals and their mental health and well being um, to engage with the industry in this way. Also, design is for is for being used and touched and interacted with on a on a physical level and it seems strange if it feels it feels like the virtual world cannot really um yeah cannot really take take the place of of physical interaction physical encounters also with 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 people
0: so i think that salone event if it happens in september and let's let's imagine for the moment that september things will be more settled so just for the sake of Argument It will be possible to travel, it will be possible for people to go there. It's kind of going to be something of like a canary in the mine, right? Because it will be one of the first big events to happen, I imagine. And Mm. we're in a situation where everyone knows the old system was slightly rotten or there were issues with it, that there are exciting things around digital. It enables much more people to take part, for instance, people can dial in from around the world. But as you say, It doesn't scratch all the itches yet. Like it doesn't deal with that problem of design is physical. You sort of need to see it and be there. It makes networking more difficult. So it'll be interesting to see how Salone tries to manage that situation, even if people can travel there. What will their digital programming be like? What will that week look like? Will it try to evolve and present something a little bit different that addresses some of the issues that have been raised during this period, or does it just revert to the norm? Does is everyone so sick of this period that it goes back to to the old ways? It's going to make for interesting viewing. I mean, I,
1: yeah, I think I think the norm is so profitable that it would be odd for for Salona not to want to return to that if if i'm honest whether whether people will respond to that whether whether it as many people will turn up in milan for a september salone i don't know i i don't know nobody knows this is this is <laughs> what this period is like it's all chaos and nobody knows right
0: okay so our next topic uh for this week is a product launch and it's an area that is very near and dear to my heart and which nobody else in decenio cares about in the slightest these are the launch of the next generation of video game consoles
1: yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's so exciting so this is-
0: it is very exciting, and I'm and I'm here to tell you why. Um, so, uh, Microsoft has launched its new consoles, uh, the Series X and Series S, whereas Sony, uh, the the other big player in this world, at least in the UK, is today launching the PlayStation Five. Now, this on the surface sounds very nerdy and teenage boy esque, and it is. However. It actually really matters.
1: Why? For some
0: reason, desi- <laughs> For some reason, <laughs> the wider design industries, I think, have a slight snobbishness and reticence around video games. You don't tend to see them represented so well within design institutions and museums. It's
1: not true. Though a video games show at the vna recently everyone's talking about how video games are a form of design and, that know,
0: vna that? show i think is one of the first times they've been shown in a major institution as part of a devoted exhibition the design museum which is a great museum i don't think has ever run a video game show despite the fact that this is a massive industry so in 2020 video games are worth around 155 billion dollars uh, by contrast, mm-hmm. the film industry is worth about $136 billion. So if you're looking mm-hmm. at uh, finances, video games are massive. If you're looking at sort of general outreach, it's estimated about 3 billion people in the world play video games. Again, that's huge. That's enormous. So, yeah, the v show, which um, is Video Games Design Play Disrupt, was a great exhibition. It was curated really well by Marie Fulston and Christian Volsing and i think was super important in terms of giving this field some recognition however it's it's a one off there hasn't been that much around them and i think people are only now beginning to wake up to the fact that this might be important and that design should take it seriously
1: what's uh, what's so special about this uh this new generation of consoles then why is this a design story that we need to think about
0: well I suppose it's a design story to the extent that consoles move in generations so you get a new series of consoles and then that's the architecture on which games are produced for the next five to ten years say so basically they provide the toolkit within which all designers are going to be working for an extended period. It's not the only one. Of course, there's PC gaming and things like that which changes. But effectively, this launch is then setting the agenda for for 10 years or so. I think it's also interesting because this is a generation of consoles which are beginning to change a little bit the way in which games are consumed. They're not the first to do this, but this is maybe the generation where it will really spark into life. So... Rather than having a disc or a cartridge and sort of discrete games which you plug into your uh, console and play on, both Sony and Microsoft are looking at digital downloads. So you download a game and play it, you don't have a hard copy, you just have the digital file. Or, and this is particularly I think Microsoft have done with this thing called Game Pass, you have a subscription, so it works more like Netflix. You pay a certain amount each month, and then you have access to this huge library of games. So this is games entering a similar kind of arena to what's going on in video content, in music, in film.
1: Was this sort of already happening with consoles like the Nintendo Switch, which is the only video games console that I am even vaguely familiar with which has both options so you can put in a cartridge or a card I guess um and you but you can also download games uh, through its cloud-based interface yeah
0: you can and it, it happened it happened with the previous Microsoft and Sony consoles as well I think it's more this time about it forming a central pillar of of the offer, it, it's becoming bigger and bigger and more people are doing it. So both Microsoft and PlayStation, Sony sorry, are offering versions of their consoles which just don't have a disk drive. Right. So you could only get digital files. So it, it's more about that steady growth and this model of subscription-based services which you're seeing across all technology.
1: Wait, Will, is there a sense in which this subscription model, obviously in music and in uh film and television shows it's actually changed the um conditions under which people create content uh and the kind of funding available when you're not buying discrete you know you're not buying a record you're subscribing to a platform is it do you think it's the same for video games or is there a similar change in you know video game developers and games designers um Uh, yeah conditions for working
0: i don't know i think it's hard to say yet um i mean definitely you could see changes in principle if people have far more available to them through something like game pass then you might see shorter content do better things which immediately grab your attention and don't demand say an 80-hour investment of time, which some games do. So maybe you might see fewer of those. To be honest, I think the bigger change is probably the rise of stuff like mobile gaming and different ways in which people are gaming. So it's no longer necessarily the domain of sweaty teenage boys sat in a basement sinking all of their hours into playing a new game they've got. People are playing games on their commutes. People from all different demographics are playing games. It's opened up massively. I think that My understanding is maybe the bigger change, but you could you could see some changes this generation. Why not?
1: Thank you, Ollie, for uh, this fascinating breakdown of the new generation of consoles. That was.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I'm gonna say one more thing about Mm -hmm. (laughs) design and its relationship to game design, which I don't understand. Um, I do find it very odd that the design press and design industries haven't incorporated video games to the same extent as some other areas and that it stands as its own field because if you look at video games a lot of the things they do and that are distinctive about them are such hot button topics in other areas of design. You have digital, you have experience design, you have um, an interest in technology, you have an interest in what can be what can be created within computers as well. These all tie into fields which are massive in other areas of design and art. The use of sort of computer art, digital art, for instance, even things like critical design and speculative design, that interest in design as a storytelling tool. All of those are present in video games, and yet they have this vast popular outreach as well. Like if you're looking at a field of design that has brought those those ideas to a mass audience... I'd say it is video games that have done that, so it is something of a mystery to me as to why it, it's why it isn't seen as a serious design discipline in the way some others are.
1: I don't know. This is do you, it, do you want to plug designo here because we we covered video game design
0: we've covered bits and pieces um we've we've done a couple of pieces around set games which are coming out but i mean even for us i'd say it's not a core area it's not as if we have video so games you want in...
1: more, more video games in <laughs> design you.
0: i always want more video games um yeah no i think i think what i'd like to see is the field have that breakthrough into wider design discourse and it is happening as you say curators are definitely more interested in them there is their its own well developed uh, video game design press however what i'd like to see is it break into other areas of design discourse i think it should feel odd if design journalists don't cover video games in the way in which it feels odd if design journalists don't cover Traditional products or furniture. That's that's the change I'd like to see. I think m- moving from moving from a topic I find very joyful and delightful to um, actually some of the bleakest news this week, and 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 something that's incredibly traumatic and actually quite. Unbelievable when this news broke. And we're talking about the the Grenfell inquiry. Um, I I don't think the the disaster at Grenfell Tower needs any introduction. But this week, the inquiry which is ongoing heard from the company which uh, produced the insulation for that building, which was found to be combustible and and exacerbated that fire. Uh, So, Christina, do you want to talk us through that new development?
1: Yeah, so the Grenfell Inquiry has heard from an ex-employee of Cellotex, which is the manufacturer of the insulation boards that were used on Grenfell Tower, and which, as you say, oddly, um, helped spread the the fire um, in 2017. And um, this ex-employee... Has admitted that while they were working for uh, Cellatex, they uh, worked on two uh, fire safety tests for this particular insulation board. And the insulation board uh, failed the first test, so this is 2014, uh, so a few years before, before the fire. The boards failed the first test in about 26 minutes, so the entire rig was engulfed by flames. Three months later, they did a second test, which was effectively rigged. They concealed uh, fire retardant panels on the rig so that the insulation wouldn't catch fire as quickly. And the ex-employee that was interviewed or grilled as part of the inquiry uh, was then told to put out press communications about this panel that didn't mention the first failed test so that the communication was, uh, was misleading, to put it mildly.
0: Yeah, so this test is overseen by the BRE, which is the Building Research Establishment. Now, when it passes that second test, the thing which passes that test is the overall rig. So that is the rig with those fire-retardant panels in. So what that test is saying is, yeah, sure, this, this product passes our fire test, providing you put some other fire-retardant panels behind it. Now, the issue seems to be that Celotex then... fight. Well, it's not a grey area, they, they deliberately mislead, but they present that panel as if it has passed the test rather than the rig as a whole. So it's going out to developers and so on saying, this is a great product, you know, it's passed this test, take it on, use it in your buildings. Whereas actually it hasn't passed. What's passed is that overall rig and that's not what they're marketing.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And Celotex have they've admitted that some of its employees have behaved with poor judgment uh, when it comes to these fire safety tests, and that they've taken the necessary precautions to make sure it doesn't happen again. I'm 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 kind of lost for words. That that a company that produces insulation for high-rise buildings, in this case, which is what the the second rig was approved for, high rises. That they can play so fast and loose with um, with the communications around fire safety in particular.
0: Yeah I think it's a kind of unbelievable story I mean everyone knows the disaster of Grenfell and all of the factors that went into creating that tragedy so to learn there was this deliberate effort to mislead about one of the materials that's a prime factor in it is disgraceful it's also, it points to wider issues, I think, within um, the construction world. So BRE and it, the Building Research Establishment, and that this is not the only body which produces these tests, I should say. There are others. There's one called the, the BBA, for instance. Their defence was to come out and say that the BRE was not a regulator, does not fulfil the function of building control, and has no mandate to monitor what manufacturers do with their reports.
1: But then what, what is the point of it? Th- then what is the service they provide?
0: <laughs> yeah, well, this is what's really worrying. Because they provide this, um, they provide this test and certification but it's not then seems as if it's not really being checked if people are using mm. that certification accurately that's what's so frightening and they i have to say their statement sounds very much as if they're trying to wash their hands of responsibility and passing the buck
1: yeah, well of course they are yeah i don't know enough about the ins and outs of this of uh, of this industry and i think that's also part of part of the problem is that it's all quite opaque and when you when you kind of ask questions of the bodies that are meant to be certifying fire safety and that are meant to be you know basically checking the homework of the of the manufacturers like no everyone's pointing at somebody else
0: yeah i think it's one of those stories where it's very hard to comment on almost because there's universal outrage i don't think anyone It's hard to look at this development and not be shocked. It's so openly villainous and and unpleasant and stunning. I mean, I I, I cannot believe that this is something that companies would... Well, I mean, I can believe that's what's so depressing about it. But to deliberately mislead people as to the safety of your product that's then going to be used in housing... Mm. Uh, it, it beggars belief uh, we we all know what a scandal this is what a mess, it stinks to high heaven I'm not sure there's much else that can be said
1: except for shame Should we talk about the mink situation in Denmark?
0: Oh sorry, I thought I didn't realise we were recording still yeah. uh, Yes no, it's still,
1: it's still here <laughs>
0: I'd checked off. Yeah, let's talk about mink. This uh, again is 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 a is is a troubling story and is upsetting, which is news that COVID-19 is basically fairly rampant among mink populations. Turns out the virus can pass into mink and importantly, it can also pass from mink back into humans. This is at the moment a story very much fixated upon denmark because something i didn't realize denmark has a hell of a lot of mink farms
1: yeah it's one of the world's i think the world's biggest producer of uh mink fur
0: yeah so denmark has between 15 million and 17 million mink
1: it's a bit worrying that they don't that that they that they're not completely sure if it's 15 or 17 million, that seems to matter. Two million extra mink. I suppose they're hard to, <laughs> ca- the qu-
0: to count. They're quite sort of wriggly little creatures.
1: Yeah, all slinky things.
0: So COVID-19 is, has been discovered in a lot of mink farms. Um, that then uh, caused alarm, principally because people were frightened that the disease might mutate within mink then pass into humans and make vaccination difficult, basically. That you would get strains of COVID-19 that were resistant to vaccines already being produced.
1: And it's turned out that the virus has mutated into what is now being called Cluster 5 in Denmark. Uh, And it has been able to pass pass on to humans. I think uh, 12 individuals were recorded as having caught this new form of COVID-19. When this became clear the danish government ordered a a total cull of the entire farmed mink population of denmark uh, and i think even began if began to incentivize mink farms to start killing off its mink uh, and then they
0: called in the police and the army to aid with that process as well
1: and it was quite messy i think there was there were kind of horrific stories of uh, of um actually let's not go into that because it's too upsetting uh the the, you know the truck that there was there was a mink spill on the road
0: i didn't know that i mean is a a mink a mink spill i take it is exactly what a mink spill sounds like yeah okay
1: yes it's it's horrible anyway yeah so um why are we bringing this up in a design podcast (laughs) i guess is is the question on everyone's lips um but the, the, the 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 thing is um that this mutation is a new example of of zoonosis isn't it Ollie? and you you've written about this so maybe you can uh, you can explain what what zoonosis is and how it comes about especially in commercial farms
0: yeah so i think if you look at the at the story of the pandemic at least one of the main strands of this is It's a story about animal spaces and human spaces, and animals coming into contact with humans. A zoonosis is a disease that can pass from uh, an animal population into a human. Now, viruses don't care about uh, taxonomic barriers. uh, As long as the biology is suitable, they can pass between organisms. So... In the case of COVID-19, they don't know exactly where it's come from, but the suspicion is originally probably bats, and then it might have passed through some other species on the way and has gone into humans. It can clearly also go into minks, so it's finding a lot of bodies it can survive in. Now, the reason I think this is so important for design and architecture is we're actually seeing quite a lot of... um, zoonotic incidents, epidemics, so SARS is zoonotic, swine flu, MERS, Ebola, Zika, Nipah. There are a lot of zoonotic diseases, and as the 20th and 21st century has gone on, they seem to be increasing. And one of the reasons for that, I think, is that there's been a huge expansion in the human population and a huge depletion of natural animal environments. So, On the one hand, you have more people coming into contact with animals more frequently. You also have this huge rise in farming. You have a vast acceleration of the number of farmed animals we have. And that's that's sort of industrial farming, and we're talking pigs, uh, chickens, cows, and so on. I suppose another story are these wildlife markets and humans coming into contact with more exotic animals We don't need to go into detail over that, but the basic story, I think, is there's a growing issue and a need to reckon with this idea that humans are in much closer proximity to animals than ever before. That's enabling diseases to pass between the two, and it's time we really look carefully at those spaces of interface. Where are we meeting animals? Are these farms... Suitable spaces for animals because let 's face it mink farms they're they're being kept in cages in order to be skinned like it's not some idyllic bucolic mink romping around the Danish hills um and having a lovely life. These are quite cramped conditions i think I'm, I'm sure some have much better welfare standards than others, but there there's a lot to consider there
1: the way i've understood the epidemiological problem of industrial farms is that it's it's a it's a kind of genetic monoculture in a way that you if you if a virus enters say a mink farm uh, there's not enough genetic diversity for the to kind of keep the virus in check but it gets passed on to uh, you know thousands of mink uh, very quickly and mutates a little bit every time it it's passed on to an individual mink and by the end of it you have you know quite a big mutation that's happened very quickly is that have I have I understood that correctly
0: yeah I think that's part of it I mean I can't speak to mink because it's not something I've looked into hugely and I should say Mm. that these things are really difficult to track and it's always disputed but for instance I think one thing that is worth looking at is uh, pig farming say Mm. which has been implicated in swine flu outbreaks now it seems that there's a fundamental mismatch between um, what you would want epidemiologically, which is very um, diverse types of pigs, sort of heirloom variety. So you have this genetic diversity and diseases can't spread as quickly, and the demands of industrial agriculture, which wants standardisation and wants very similar animals that produce the right amount of meat quickly. Um, so you've had this sort of um, effort to turn animals almost into objects, really, that they're not seen as living creatures so much. They're seen as an opportunity to, to design a product, okay, it's, it's, it's messier than a traditional product, but a, a product nevertheless. And so you've got those two competing needs bumping up against one another. I think this is one of the things which is going to become more and more of an issue for design and architecture, or at least it should, um, because there's going to have to be a desire to grapple with the spaces which we create for animals, whether they're agricultural or whatever. I mean, agriculture is the main one and how we think of those. Because at the moment, a lot of the sort of vast industrial farms are pretty horrendous. They they are designed around the idea of animals as objects. On the other hand, you have programmes which I think are quite funny and sweet, but are uh, like architecture for dogs, where, for instance, architects have created these funny little spaces for pet dogs. And those those really anthropomorphize animals. They sort of create um, hammocks for pugs or a vanity mirror for poodles and so on. And what seems to go missing at the moment within design and architecture and the way in which we design around creatures is an effort to create spaces which actually engage with the realities of what it is like to be that creature. So neither to anthropomorphise nor to treat as object, something which deals with the idea that these are living creatures with different needs which aren't human. Um and, and to cater for that to an extent, that's really hard. I wouldn't I wouldn't fancy trying to design for animals. I think it's a really difficult challenge. But it is something that's going to need to happen.
1: We need we need a launch of architecture for mink. Or architecture for, for pigs. Oh no, wait, that's the Make Federal Building script. <laughs> wait. Um Right, coming back full circle. <laughs>
0: Yeah. so one of the regular features we're going to be doing on the crit is a roundup of recent product releases and projects. So, see what various designers are up to and what's been put out. I mean, this has been a year marked by cancellations and not so many launches really because the main the main spaces in which things are launched, the fairs have all been covided. So, it's it's been a rather nice actually looking around and seeing what's been done, and finding a couple of products which have come out recently. Uh, first one we're going to look at is a piece of lighting design. This is the Mayday lamp for floss, uh, designed by Konstantin Gucic, uh, which he did back in 1999 originally. So some, something from quite early in his career. It's been its uh, 20th anniversary and Floss have celebrated with an anniversary edition which has replaced the original orange polypropylene handle with... I
1: really like that handle. I
0: like the handle too. There's something very pleasing about it. Sort of like emergency colours. It looks really like roadside works type aesthetic.
1: Yeah, it's, it's the Mayday look.
0: This new one has replaced that polypropylene handle with a tumbled die-cast aluminium version. It's been produced in an edition of 2020 to celebrate it. I think it's an interesting one because that Mayday lamp, it had a huge impact. It's in MoMA's permanent collection, for instance. And it's such an odd lamp because it doesn't really look like anything else I can think of in a high-end lighting catalogue. So if you look at Floss's work it's all these very sumptuous lights really exquisite um uh, materials very delicate very poised and then you have constantine's May Day, which i mean he his the photo the photography he made of it has people using it in garages it, it's meant to be this sort of jack-of-all-trades slightly messy thing
1: yeah so for those who aren't familiar with it it kind of looks like a megaphone in a way or um kind of old-fashioned lantern the kind of the love child of a of a lantern and a megaphone <laughs> and uh, has a cable that kind of wraps around the fixture and can be it can be hung from that cable or the fixture and you know you can it's kind of uh quite adaptable uh, and looks quite ad hoc but yeah it's a it's a great piece of design I I don't know is, is this the is this a good time to mention that um our readers and listeners can win? I thought Wanna you'd
0: think? never ask. Yes, <laughs> you can win one of the uh, edition of 2020 of the May Day anniversary. We're doing a reader's survey at the moment and we'll share the link for that in the podcast information. Next up is the Linear Systems series designed by Thomas Benson for MUTO. Um, this is uh, a new sort of office series. It's quite nice. Uh, very nice, actually, I should say. Sorry, Thomas, I don't know why I hedged that. Um, It's a series of sort of tables and benches and lights as well. And it's very sort of simply done, very elegant. Uh, But the idea is it's intended to be a bit more homely. So at least one of the versions is executed in wood. And it's also meant to be flexible so you can reconfigure it. Now, I think Thomas has done a really nice piece of design on this. The system looks very elegant. I think it's most interesting in a way in terms of it being very emblematic of current trends within office design, which are merging that sort of home space with an office space and the collision of those two different areas and trying to introduce more homely, warm, fluid, flexible environments in the office, which has traditionally been seen as a much more static regimented space.
1: Yeah, I guess office furniture companies have been talking about this, the kind of the blur distinction between home and home and office for quite a while, but it certainly has become uh, amplified and exa- exacerbated uh, by COVID and and people working from home. I, I personally feel like I, I, I want a clearer distinction between work and, and my life, especially because I've been cooped up in my flat. For, uh, for months now um, but you know it, it's it's definitely a, 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 a tendency to to keep watching because uh, these manufacturers will have to will have to change and adapt to 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 new realities.
0: next product we're going to look at is a Jasper Morrison joint. this is the vitra evoke which is a single piece plastic cantilever chair that Jasper has created for them. Um
1: I thought it was Evo C.
0: Well yeah, I was a bit unsure. <laughs> I watched some YouTube videos and people said evoke, but I it does say Evo C. Um <laughs> <laughs> Who knows, maybe Vitra can dial in next week and confirm one way or the other. Yeah, um,
1: we'll put in an errata.
0: But it's an interesting piece, I think. Uh, It's very Jasper Morrison to the extent that it's quite pared down and unassuming. It's very clearly sort of delicately engineered and precise, but it's not prepossessing in any way. It's this quite simple, um, well-resolved chair form. Now, the reason I find it interesting, I suppose, is there's a really long history of these cantilevered chairs within 20th and 21st century design. So a big part of sort of um, all that Bauhaus movement and so on. At the start of the century, you start to get these cantilevered chairs in tubular steel. So Mark Stam does one in the 20s. I think that's I don't know whether it's the first, but it's it's one of the first really prominent ones. And then that gets picked up by Marcel Breuer and Mies van der Rohe, and everyone starts doing these pieces because they make use of the vernacular of modern materials and they do something which hasn't been done before, that sort of... Um, slight visual illusion of how is that chair standing up when all of the weight is being put on an area where it doesn't have legs beneath. It's sort of that trick around stability.
1: It kind of became a like an emblem of modern manufacturing techniques, didn't it? And and in extension of to that, an emblem an emblem of modernity in furniture design.
0: Yeah, and it it sort of then it really just keeps recurring over the course of the century. So um Alvar Alto does a wooden cantilever chair for instance Gerrit Rietveld also does wooden ones too and then you start seeing some plastic ones emerge and I think one of the most famous obviously is the is the Panton chair uh produced by Vitra as well which is this super sinuous quite poppy organic shape of a chair i think george nelson said something like something like that shouldn't be called a chair which is <laughs> kind of a funny quote it
1: could go either way can't it that's either a criticism or a um <laughs>
0: yeah you can imagine pants also. what do you mean by that exactly <laughs> but do you like it do you like it george but it's that chair was but that Panton chair was famously difficult to engineer I think I think Panton had gone through tens of manufacturers trying to get it made um and, and getting that cantilever in plastic was a real was a real issue and I mean there have been other ones but a lot of these plastic ones do have that more sort of organic vocabulary about them they are more like smooth flowing curves as if the chair has sort of bubbled up out of the ground almost. And what's quite nice about Jasper's new one is it's not really that. It's quite regimented. I mean, aesthetic wise, it looks much more like those rigid tubular steel ones, like quite systematic. Um and, and to do that within plastic, he's used gas injection moulding, which is something he did back in nineteen ninety nine with the air chair for Magis, which was one of his one of his great designs and a real breakthrough i think and it, it's just quite nice to see to see him use that again and, and to create something which has some of the vocabulary of those plastic fantastic chairs but filtered through this this much more historical tubular steel aesthetic
1: right and then the final uh the final product we want to talk about is block block by establishment. yeah so
0: this is designed by Tour, a paris-based designer and it's a coffee table series, comes in a couple of different sizes. Very simple, geometric uh, coffee tables, sort of big rectangles. What's really nice about it is the use of colour, however. Yeah,
1: it's really nice. It, each each of the sides ha- has a different colour, which makes it look almost like, a, like an isometric drawing or something.
0: Yeah, so they're different shades of the same colour.
1: It really, yeah. I think it's hard to convey in a podcast. I think people will have to go into the show notes and look at it because uh, it has a, a very particular effect. And I think part of that is that it's been designed thinking about colour from the outset rather than slapping on colour at the last final stages of, of the design, which is something that happens, unfortunately, quite a lot.
0: Yeah, and I just think it's, it's kind of a nice example of where Established and Sons are as a company... Right now, because they emerged, I think in the 2000s as this kind of enfant terrible of the furniture design industry, and they were quite daring and sort of brash and um, sort of knowingly gauche almost. And they would do these quite shocking pieces. Um, over time, that company ran into difficulties a little bit. It it sort of collapsed slightly under its own hype and excess, and it became very associated with this era of furniture design, which was much more about the image and sort of publishing images of design online, rather than necessarily producing uh, viable production pieces. And this is something which the design journalist Anna Bates has written about for Desenio in the past. So there was this kind of decline and fall of Established and But then... In the 2010s, late 2010s, I think maybe around 2017, Sebastian Rong, who was one of the original founders, rejoined the company as design director. And there's been something of a renaissance in Established and Sons. They've been much more cautious. I think they've, they've tried to sort of steer away from some of that early hoopla that surrounded them. And try and keep some of their same exuberance and fun and I think that's that's captured quite nicely in, in the colour used by Pauline but to really deal with that in a much more mature restrained way to to try and anchor that more in reality and I think Pauline's piece is a good example of where they are now it, it is fun and it, it is this lovely colourful bright charming piece but It's been executed with restraint. There's sophistication there. And and I think that's kind of what that company is going for now a little. I'm afraid that's all we have time for on this inaugural episode of The Crit. Thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed this episode, then please like and subscribe. It helps people to find the podcast. If you haven't enjoyed it, please still like and subscribe. Take your revenge by killing us with kindness. We'll be back in a fortnight with more news and analysis from the design world. But in the interim, if you'd like to win the May Day Anniversary Lamp by Konstantin Gurchich for floss, then just fill in the Decennia Reader Survey. We're sharing the link to that in the podcast information. See you back here in two weeks should say, if you've liked the music that introduced this podcast and which is played throughout, it was created for us by Yori Suzuki uh, with Team Suzuki at Pentagram, which is Adam Chong-McLeod and Charlie Carroll. Thank you so much to uh, Team Suzuki for all of their work on this.
1: This episode of The Crit was produced by Evie Hall and edited by me, Christina Rapatsky.